Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 11th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Wells Report on the Patriots' underinflated balls and what sort of air that report is full of. We'll also talk about Bill Simmons's imminent departure from ESPN, where he should land, and what it means for his website, Grantland. Finally, we'll assess the rise of daily fantasy sports and what it could mean for the future of pro sports and of gambling. There's a lot on the show about what it could mean, what it means, mm-hmm. and what it will mean. Mm-hmm. All, all possible uh, verb tenses of, of meaning. Um, my friend colleague and occasional freak slash panicker Stefan Fatsis is off this week sitting in for him and joining us from our New York studio is Slate writer and Massachusetts zone Seth Stevenson who is at least in my imagination wearing a full Pat Patriot getup complete with under inflated tri-corner hat hello Seth hello Josh no comment on wardrobe. Uh, I mean, you were right. I didn't want. I just want to ch- ch- alter your uh, perception there. I mean, that's exactly what I'm wearing. Uh, alongside Seth, wearing a four-cornered hat because he's always just got to be one corner better, and carrying a musket. It's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. It's not that I demand that my hats have four corners. It's that I demand the interior angles of my hats to be 360 degrees, <laughs> and one just naturally follows from the other. Um, our bonus segment for Slate Plus members will be more hat talk, miller, hat min- talk. millinery minute. Hot, hot talk. Hat hot take. We will rank, categorize, poke, and prod, not just hats, but also 
the recent spate of NBA buzzer beaters, the ones that went off glass and otherwise. To hear this segment and other bonus content on Hang Up and Listen and the Culture and Political Gabfest, among other shows, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. And if you want to try the Slate Plus before you buy the Slate Plus, you can sign up at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus, and you'll get a two-week free trial to see if you like the hats, to see if they fit, and then you can just go from there. One more order of business. We've got a bit of a weird schedule coming up. Uh, next week is our spring call-in show, which we've already recorded. Um, the week after that is Memorial Day, which will push our recording date to Tuesday. So Monday, May 18th, call-in show. Tuesday, May 26th, regular hang-up episode. Set your calendars. Be aware. Set your clocks. And now, onto this week's program. Uh, it took 103 days, but last week... Attorney Ted Wells released his 243-page report on Deflategate, a.k.a. Balgazi, a.k.a. that time the Patriots were caught using deflated footballs in the AFC championship game. I looked up three congressional reports on the actual attack in Benghazi and combined they are 159 pages. But in fairness, none of them include text messages like, nice dude, Jimmy needs some kicks, let's make a deal. Come on, help the deflator. Based on text exchanges between the self-described deflator, Patriots locker room attendant Jim McNally, and equipment assistant John Jastrzemski, as well as interviews, air pressure data, interpretations of scientific consultants, and security footage of McNally taking the game balls inside a bathroom and locking the door for 100 seconds, Wells concluded that it is more probable than not that New England Patriots personnel were involved in a deliberate effort to circumvent the rules and that it is also more probable than not that Tom Brady was at least generally aware of the inappropriate activities. As we record this, the NFL has yet to announce any punishment for Brady or the Patriots franchise. Seth, you've been covering the Jahar Sarnayev trial for Slate, so I will now refer to you as Hang Up and Listen's legal expert. But you're also a Patriots fan, wearing that hat, perhaps even a deflate gate truther. What did you make of the Wells report? Uh, I'm definitely a deflate gate truther. You know, I I think I would be okay, I guess, in theory, if they want to slap a one-game suspension on Tom Brady to make this all go away and make everyone shut up about it. But I also, part of me thinks, can you really suspend someone when it's more probable than not that they were generally aware of something? Does that justify a suspension? I mean, having sat through all these legal proceedings of the Sarnayev trial, like, you, they, I don't know exactly what the burden of proof is supposed to be in, in Roger Goodell's mind. Like, I don't know how he... It is a preponderance of evidence standard in the NFL. So more probable than not means you are punishable in Goodell land. Isn't it worse to suspend one innocent, beautiful quarterback <laughs> than to, to let... I, I won't be suspending his chin dimple. That will still stay, you know, dented. But this, I do, having read the report, all 243 pages of it, it's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, they had never before recorded the pressure of the footballs. You know, they didn't record the pressure of the footballs before this game started, even though there'd been this tip. They didn't just come to the Patriots and say, hey, we got word that, that these footballs are, have been underinflated. Can we just make sure together that we've got them at the right place? It, that did make it feel a little bit like a sting. And then they had two different gauges, one of which had a crooked needle and like apparently was this like outdated, antiquated gauge that, that gave totally different readings. 
I, I hate to be the truther and I hate to be – I am a homer here. But at the same time, there was a lot of like ridiculous evidentiary weakness going on in the report. I mean you got – as objective observers, how did you feel about these readings being taken by two different gauges? They only, re- they only read four of the Colts balls at halftime because they ran out of time while they read all 11 of the Pats. And I want to point out a few other things about this. <laughs> Wait. How do you guys feel but also hear eight other like Patriots truth facts? The readings at the end of the game, when they took readings after the game had ended, all of the Patriots footballs were in compliance by – I believe by on both gauges. However, three of the four uh, Colts balls that had been tested by at least one of the gauges were not in compliance. That's because so they reinflated the Patriots balls at halftime. And they, when they reinflated the Patriots balls at halftime, despite knowing – despite having been advised that the, the Patriots uh, preferred to have the balls at 12.5 PSI or whatever the metric is, uh, those balls were reinflated to 13 when they reinflated them. Now, was that done – out of spite? Was that meant to be a punishment? Even though they know they knew it was supposed to be 12 they were they reinflated to 13. Why would they do that? Because they were taking their uh, cue from the trainers who were like, we're going to give Tom watermelons. We're going to give Tom beach balls. Balloons, I believe. Yeah. No, they said they watermelons, watermelons too also. at one point. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of references to large inflatable things or it, non-inflatable things. It, Go ahead, please. It, you have, you I'm have, not done, Mike. We're at page 143. Go. <laughs> it came out that when, in general, when the refs find a ball is underinflated, they just like stick some air into it and then don't even bother to see where it's at. So that's how in the, uh, the, Jets, the Thursday Night Jets game that we learned about that the balls were at 16 because the, the, the refs just sort of like shove more air in there. This was all – It's the, the gist of this is that it all seemed like it was a very casual, just kind of a thing. Hey, let's make sure the balls are basically inflated. Uh, nothing feels completely weird about them until there was this accusation against the Patriots and then it became this big deal. We brought in a white shoe legal law firm. I would also like to point out earlier in the year, the Vikings and Panthers had a game in which they were caught on videotape on the sidelines heating the balls with heaters and the NFL said, hey, stop that. And no punishment was rendered at all. I'm going to see the floor for a moment, but I'll be back. Wow. Wow. Josh, want to crack at this or shall I go? No, you should go. Okay. I think what you've done, Mr. Chairman Gowdy – oh, no, wait a minute. I think what you've done here, uh, Seth, is a disservice to your overall cause. Because this is like saying, well, look, the Warren Commission had several failings, but it definitely doesn't mean that Frank Sinatra ordered the hit on John F. Kennedy. I am willing to believe that it is more generally acceptable that possibly Tom Brady knew. It would seem that if you had to come to one conclusion, and either he knew or he didn't know, probably did know, and if you had to come to one conclusion, either where they were deflated on purpose or they weren't, that I think is pretty strongly indicated that they were deflated on purpose in a locker room, a locked, sorry, a locked bathroom for whatever, a minute 40. But none of that matters, I don't think. I think that the interesting thing here is not the facts of whether they honestly did deflate the balls. You have a side question of what should be, what is what is fairness, what is the, what should be the burden of proof, and what is proportionality of punishment? I think that's where the real question and the real crux of this is. And I'm just quite frankly shocked, although I'm not shocked. I mean, people hate the Patriots. But I think it is, you know, the punishments that people are floating around a minimum of two weeks. I think that's a shockingly, I think that's an outrageously high punishment for what really was a 
somewhere between a, a, a wrong. It was a wrong, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what everyone is saying. And my thought experiments are, what if Blake Bortles did this in week five? Oh, but <laughs> this is the AFC championship game. doesn't matter. It's 15-yard penalty when you, when you rough the quarterback in the AFC championship game or week five. All right, how about this? What if Andrew Luck deflated the balls? And then I'd also ask you, let's say whatever team that you're a fan of, they're on the precipice of the Super Bowl, and they're getting charged with all this stuff, stuff they did do. Now, you, what is the best thing for you to do as your team? Say, you know what? I did this. And then it's an unbelievable shit show where everyone that week is saying, don't even let them play in the game. But, you know, honestly saying it, like there's a clamor against this. I think you'd be bringing down hell if you admitted it during that week. Or do you just deny it for the time being and face the consequences down the road? I say 32 out of 32 teams would do the strategy of saying, I don't know what you're talking about, and then face the consequences. You want to say the consequences should be this two weeks, four weeks? I say that's too much, but man, do people hate the Patriots, and man, does Roger Goodell want to show himself to be uh, the swift arm of justice. But Mike, isn't a counter argument to that, that, for example, the Cleveland Browns general manager, Ray Farmer, was suspended for four games. That's a team that nobody particularly cares about, and this was for texting on the sidelines, something that didn't particularly confer an advantage to the Browns, as we can see from their record and the fact that it had nothing to do with what was going on the field. So, you know, that seems like a small crime suspended well, for yeah. four weeks. Okay, yeah. Goodell will suspend and will issue harsh judgments with players or with personnel who are further away from the game. But I just think it's a non-analogous situation. Any suspension of Farmer really doesn't affect the Browns' chances of winning that week that he's suspended, whereas the suspension of Brady couldn't affect the team's chances more. Also, I'd point out the media attention has not been analogous. And and the uh, the transgression by the Browns GM did not occasion a white shoe Manhattan law firm to spend millions of dollars in three months doing... You're really into these white shoes. Is there a big <laughs> factor for you? Also, I would like to point out Aaron Rodgers talked about how he likes the ball to be overinflated. And he tries... He, it was like a quote where he said, I try to slip it by the refs. He wants it to be more than the maximum inflation level. There was no punishment there and not a lot of outcry there. I would also note that the Chargers in 2012 were caught putting stickum on the football, which is another illegal uh, the NFL, The, the NFL ruled that that was not actually against the rules. But all these players well, have... Well, they still find them. They still gave them the $20,000 fine. They must have been doing something wrong. All these players have come out and said, here's how we broke the rules. You know, uh, uh, Jerry Rice with the stick them on the gloves and Brad Johnson with roughing up the footballs before the Super Bowl. And it's occasioned nothing but a laugh. There is no hand-wringing with any of it. It's seen as gamesmanship throughout the land, except in this case with well, Tom Well, look, Brady. part of that is how it's reported. And I don't think that's actually a bad thing. So 1951... The Giants are stealing signs against the Dodgers when Bobby Thompson hits the home run. If that had come out the next day, wouldn't that have been an, a, a huge scandal in baseball? And, yeah, when sure, it comes out 50 years later, it's funny and nobody cares. The stuff that you're talking about, about people treating the football, Jeff Blake talking about it in the early 2000s, that's like 10 years ago. When somebody reports the day after the AFC championship game, the Patriots had X number of footballs that were underinflated by... X amount. Don't you think that that's something that the NFL should look into? 
But isn't it a flaw of logic? I mean, these can unmeet the press. They were comparing the Clintons to Tom Brady as people who always cheat and get away with it. You know, so it's not just like, hey, we got a situation. This isn't like me admitting that I was speeding four and a half weeks ago. This is me, you catching me with your radar gun. And of course, you got to adjudicate that now. It's not like that. It's I think that there's a real difference in actual amount of ire. And, you know, with the Giants, those players were extremely ashamed to have been exposed. They knew what was cheating and what was gamesmanship, and they knew that that was a shameful act. I think that this is less than a shameful act. I think that the the cover-up is a bit understandable, and I really do think game suspensions, I'm pretty surprised that game suspensions are being levied as just a matter of fairness. Though it's a matter of mob justice, I get it. But aren't the Patriots, isn't the Patriots' behavior as elucidated in the report, aren't they acting like they're doing a bad thing? Like, let's not say Patriots. Let's say two employees of the Patriots and maybe possibly more probably than not generally aware Tom Brady. There's no there's no suggestion that Bill Belichick. So so there's text exchanges between the two Patriots employees in which they talk about illicitly deflating a football. There's evidence that Tom Brady talked to one of these guys after never talking to him before and not even according to Brady, not even knowing who this guy was talking to him on the phone for no, he said an he hour. Didn't know the, he said he didn't know who the other guy was. The guy he didn't know was the guy he said he didn't know. But talking, um, talking to him. But that's for, understandable. But there's an innocent explanation for that. Like for a year, I really don't need to talk to my equipment manager. And then the very moment this becomes the biggest story in America, what is he not going to reach out to the guy? Like just give sideward glances to him in the, in the hallway. Yeah, He's going to sure. talk to him on the phone for an hour and send him text like are you okay how are you holding up that might be nice there's an innocent (laughs) explanation for that i mean the the, the report also i will say yes i agree that it's more likely than that but that's as far as i would go i would say you know the report read into the fact that tom brady did not give over his cell phone to paul weiss and rifkin and their white shoes that's america you don't have to do that if i were tom brady i would suspend you if if they want to i know the employer is on his side like if he found out that that uh craft was demanding he did that then he'd have a different explanation. Anyway, I do think we are going to see if he really, really didn't do it. There's a scenario where Tom Brady could have been like me going to my accountant, hey, I want a refund. The accountant goes, "Uh, you know, I'm not going to break the law. Me saying, I never told you to break the law. I'm saying I need a refund. Get me a refund. That sort of situation could be going on with the footballs. And I really do think that no one has more resources than Tom Brady in terms of accomplishment money and, you know, family money. So if he really didn't do it, I would go scorched earth. But I don't think we're going to see it because I think he really did do it. I think he probably did do it too. Yeah. Uh, but but I also think it's just it's just treated as a much much bigger deal as you said Mike than it would have been if it was any other team and any other quarterback. And uh, here what I can bring to the table here as a Patriots fan is how annoying this is because it now feeds <laughs> into this accruing narrative of the Patriots as cheaters which greatly bothers me because so much of it is invented. So much is not I mean it's based on the tuck rule that somehow the Patriots were cheating because of the tuck rule. And that was a, a that was an, a rule on the books that was properly enforced. Oh then come on, was, Seth. That's that has it's not, nobody it's not thinks that the Patriots were yeah, cheating. It's all about tuck rule. it's all about Spygate. Spy and so and the sense the weird formations against the Ravens that people well, were Well and Belichick's hiding on the uh, disabled list and listing everyone. But go ahead, give me the sentence because I always say this to people about Spygate. There is a sentence or two to say about that to put that in context. Well, you want to deliver it? First of all, P- everyone sees 
seems to think that the Patriots were taping the walkthrough of the Rams, which never happened. That was a discredited, retracted Boston Herald story. That didn't happen. What they, in fact, were doing was videotaping signals out in the stadium that are in front of everyone. I mean, they could have just been writing them down in a notebook. Instead, they videotaped them. That was the transgression. Basically, everyone in the league was doing it. And it's it's just ridiculous to treat that as a tremendous deal the way everyone does and, and to create this narrative of the Patriots as cheaters based on that. This incident, okay, this, if, if Tom Brady did, that this is cheating. I mean, or gamesmanship. But, but, but Spygate, it really bothers me that it's created this sense of the Patriots not having earned their championships. I think that this whole thing is being blown out of proportion. I agree. But I think in sports, there is this push by especially franchises that are successful to break the rules. And then when you're caught, you should be punished for it. But I think most teams, if not all, are doing this or things like this. And then when they get caught, they should be punished for it. And I think that's about it. And we shouldn't. What's an appropriate be, we, punishment? We shouldn't be in high dudgeon about it. We shouldn't be outraged that anyone is doing it. But this is literally the only thing that the NFL should be punishing teams for: mm-hmm. is breaking the rules about things that you're doing on the field. Like I don't think they should be punishing things that the criminal justice system should be handling. They should be punishing teams for underinflating footballs because it's a football football rule. So um, what's the punishment? What do you think the punishment should be? Uh, so couple, far, I agree with you. Couple hmm? games. Really? See, yeah. I think it should be draft picks. But All right. It wasn't a Patriots transgression. It was a, it was a Tom Brady transgression. All right. Oh, they benefit. It doesn't matter. If one guy cheats, they all benefit. All right. Here we Tom go. Brady. Here we go. Away we go. Uh, now time for a word from our sponsor this week. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash hangup. All right. For going on about a year now, there's been speculation about the fate of Bill Simmons, ESPN's long-running columnist, podcast host, Grantland editor-in-chief, and executive producer of the documentary series 3430. Simmons, who started writing for ESPN in 2001, was suspended for three weeks, two of those without pay, for calling Roger Goodell a liar on his podcast when discussing the NFL commissioner's claims about the Ray Rice case. According to reporting by Deadspin's Barry Pacheski and others, it was ESPN president John Skipper who made the call to suspend Simmons back then, and it was Skipper who made the preemptive move of telling the New York Times' Richard Sandemir that the two sides were not going to reach a deal and that Simmons was going to be leaving the company. It's fair to say, I think, that Simmons is both the most popular and the most influential sports writer working in America today. And so uh, this is significant on two levels. First, he's leaving the most popular, most influential sports company in America. And second, he's now in search of his next destination, which could be another legacy media company that wants to make a run at ESPN, some web startup, his own independent venture, or some combination of all three. Uh, Mike, what do you think of the Simmons-ESPN breakup? 
Uh, I understand why Bill Simmons broke up with them. He, it's a little like Howard Stern, and you could claim that at his height on terrestrial radio, he was uh, paid more than anyone and having more success than anyone, but it just got to him, and after a certain amount of time and after earning a certain amount of money so that you don't nes- desperately need to worry about paying the mortgage, you say to yourself, is this worth it? And the things that might be, to, to you or I, things that we put up with, I mean, he's he got to the point where he just didn't want to put up with them. And some of those things... I think would have bothered us, you know. I guess that's what we trade you, me, <laughs> you and me, Josh and Seth. That's what we trade for uh, working at our comparatively less grandiose wages. But you know, when they told him before they gave him the Obama interview that he couldn't interview Obama because of politics, ugh. and when they told him, sure, the way he went about daring them sus- for suspending him for calling Roger Goodell a liar. But you know what? I think most of that stuff is within the realm of what a columnist should be able to say. So I understand why Simmons is gone. The only thing I would say is I don't think he'll be as popular in his next uh, go-round, wherever that is. I think he'll get a lot of heat uh, and attention when he goes there. But ESPN just has such a power to leverage everything. And there, he has a good podcast. There are other people with really good podcasts that don't get as much, you know, sports-related podcasts that don't get as much listenership. And a lot of it is the ESPN promotional value. And he has a good, you know, he writes a good column, a good long column, sometimes often too long for me to read. You put that good long column in another place, you know, people might not visit it as much. There are a lot of examples of this. You know, we have talked about all these sports media properties where we say, you know what, that's that's as good as ESPN. That's better than ESPN. I think we all liked that uh, the, the highlight show that Fox Sports 1 does. Have we watched it a lot since then? It's like if it's on ESPN, it gets paid attention to. And Simmons will get that originally, but I think that he's going to be less paid attention to in his next iteration than he was at ESPN. Two things before you talk, Seth. First, um, Mike, you were saying that from Simmons's perspective, basically, that his, this was his decision. Are you not buying the uh, notion put forward by Skipper that this was ESPN's call, that they decided not to renew his deal? Well, I think that's all semantics. You know, it was clear what his uh, complaints and arguments were going to be. And, and so they said, we're not, th- this is going to be a non-starter. And um, you also implied that we make the decision to work at a comparatively less grandiose media organization for less money because we get more freedom. I'm I'm actually waiting on my $4 million mm-hmm. ESPN offer. So I'm put in the position to make that that choice, I just wanted to make that clear. Um, right. I get it. You have eth- you've you've had uh, uh, an ethical stance thrust I, upon you. I haven't, but I haven't been <laughs> challenged with that yet. Uh, Seth, what are what are your thoughts? Well, we don't we don't actually know what the holdup on these terms was, right? We don't know if he'd asked for some astronomical sum that even ESPN balked at, and if if it was something about what he's allowed to say or not say with regard to his corporate overlords. I mean, I felt like the strictures on that were pretty reasonable, actually. I mean, I think, you know, you, when you work for a big company, you know there's going to be certain lines that you have to stay within. And he would walk right up to those lines and put a toe over them. And mostly he got away with it. And once in a while, he didn't. And I don't think that's crazy. I don't think it's crazy for ESPN to draw a few of those lines. And my question is, if, if it was him feeling hemmed in and needing to go somewhere else for more freedom, I mean, what more is this guy going to be allowed to do? 
ESPN went everywhere with him. He's making documentaries. He's doing podcasts. He's on television doing analysis of NBA games. At one point, I remember in 2004, he had a cartoon series about himself that he did, which I think failed kind of spectacularly and, and stopped pretty quickly. But I mean, what he has his own uh, vanity website. I, I hesitate to call it a vanity website. It's a very good website. But he has his own. He can do anything he wants to do at the worldwide leader. What what more is he going to get somewhere else? But I think Mike was right. That's the tension that he gets everything that he wants in terms of different media platforms to talk about and, and opine on and, you know, spread the, the good word of Simmons. But he's not allowed to say exactly what he wants to say on those platforms every single time. And that's where the tension comes in, because the way that this guy became popular, he did it on on merit and because it was legitimate that this was someone who people liked and responded to is because of the freedom of his voice and the freedom to say things that generally would not appear on ESPN platforms, whether that was objectifying women or whether it's calling Roger Goodell a liar. And so as his platform grew, that tension was going to be inevitable. And it seemed like the tension was on both sides, like as the reporting and Deadspin and elsewhere noted. There's a lot of resentment within ESPN for the ways he would hit back at his employer and maybe not get punished for it. He's like the the Tom Brady of uh, ESPN. This guy, this guy needs to be taught a lesson. But, you know, if he has his, his own independent website or or whether he goes, if he goes to work for Vice or someplace that will allow him to curse or call Roger Goodell whatever names he wants to, maybe he would make less money and have the kind of Howard Stern-esque freedom of expression, Mike, that you were referring to. Yeah, except for the money part, I think it's a good analogy. I mean, Howard Stern is <laughs> right. by far less people, but he's happier by all accounts. I wonder if Sirius would be interested in, in Simmons. I mean, I don't, and I don't know if they have money to burn anymore. Wouldn't that be sort of limiting his empire if he was just if he just had a satellite? No, he could have a deal with them, and he could have another deal with a Turner to be on television, and he could have another deal with somebody else to write. And I also and I also think as far as Seth, as far as what you were saying, what he gets to do podcast, he gets to do thirty for thirty. You know, he would argue, and I think it's a good argument. Like, who's doing who the favor? Uh, his from his brain and a bunch of talented other people, but he's a driving force. He creates this documentary series that is great for ESPN. I don't know if it makes them a lot of money, but it does a bunch of things. It gives them prestige. It uh, gives them uh, entry into another area. It fills up programming. Like, I, I like it better than, you know, women's softball on ESPN1 when they have a 30 for 30 that I haven't seen before. Although, you know, to be fair, that Louisiana State Tennessee game did go down to the wire. So, yeah, podcasts, right? Is that ESPN saying, here, have a podcast? Or is him creating one of the best listened to podcasts and a really quality podcast? And I think one of the essential podcasts. So I think that he wouldn't say, thank you, ESPN, for the freedom. He looks at it like ESPN should thank me for the output. But this reminds me, this reminds me of someone, something someone was telling me about the, the sort of the second marriage parable of where, you're, you know, in a first marriage, maybe you're 80% happy with, with the thing about your partner, but there's 20% of it that you just don't like about your partner. And, the, and that the importance of that 20% grows and grows in, in your mind until the marriage falls apart. And then when you go looking for a, a second partner, it's the 20% that you're fascinated with. And that's the thing that really draws you and that you look for. And you forget that, in fact, you know, 80% of the previous relationship was great and that was all stuff you liked. And I wonder if there's a, like, a little bit of that going on here. This is, uh, that is just the worst analogy for marriage I've ever heard. <laughs> that's like a Mike Huckabee. <laughs> like, let's not let anyone get divorced. <laughs> No uh, aspersions will be cast at uh, Mike Huckabee on this podcast. 
Another interesting thing about Simmons is the website that he created, which, according to Skipper, will live on. This is Grandland, which was something that I think was given to Simmons to keep him happy back when that was something that ESPN wanted to do, and then has grown into this kind of destination for great writing on sports and culture independent of Simmons. So there's a question about whether it will last beyond his tenure, given that like 30 for 30, it confers prestige on the company. It, I'm sure, does not make money, but it also is something that could be, you know, just a rounding error for ESPN. But the question is, is it the kind of rounding error that they that they want to maintain on their balance sheet without its founder um, still working there? Has he made money for ESPN, do you think? Has he more than justified his contract? I think probably, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a, a form of revenue that's not cable fees, which is getting endangered as uh, the world of cord cutting and cable gets redefined. I think we've probably reached the pinnacle or near pinnacle of ESPN, you know, charging $6 a subscriber for its networks. Yeah, they're trying to sue Verizon now for trying yeah. to unbundle. So, I think that, you know, but for the headaches, maybe if he was uh, a more what the bosses would consider a more model employee is exactly the kind of guy you want to get in with. He generates his own heat and gets people to, you know, draws page views for his article, draws page views for the articles he points to his podcast. I don't know if they're monetizing it well. Um, you know, I know a little bit about that operation. It seems like maybe they could monetize those podcasts a little bit better. These are now these. This is peanuts for ESPN. But if you want to talk dollars and cents, if they're not making money on Simmons, if they didn't get you know big profit from the amount they paid him, they should have. And uh, I think you and I both think they probably did make money on him. And so maybe his next boss will too. Yeah, well, that can be a blessing or a curse, right? Like working for a company that doesn't care how much money you're costing them. Like at the next job, if he is working for the man and not working for himself, I don't know if he'll be happy with somebody who's like, you know, checking the, you know, red ink versus black ink at each of his individual ventures and deciding, hey, maybe these like three things that you're doing aren't something we should be in the in the business of doing. Well, also, what in the absence of this big support network, and so Simmons is neither the data nerd who's going to be making sort of analytical, uh, genius analytical uh, observations based on sort of sabermetric analysis or something, nor is he the scoop machine who's got, you know, the inside, although increasingly he's buddy-buddy with, with retired athletes, but he's not the scoop machine who's going to be coming, you know, talking to general managers and telling you things you didn't know. He's like the amiable ringleader who's going to make jokes and talk about his Vegas trips. And that works great if you've got that other stuff too, but does it work if you don't have those other elements? Well, he built out Grantland, which is not really in his image, right? I think he's a good curator and collector of talent. He proved that. And he's also somebody who, with a proven ability. Like he came from, you know, AOL Digital City Boston and became a superstar writer without any kind of fire hose to back him. So I think more, as much as anyone in like the web era of of sports writing or writing in general, I think he's a proven commodity both to draw people to his own writing and to build a, a site of other people. I think he's also an above average, above replacement level NBA commentator. I mean, it's not the hugest job in the world, but you sub him out and you sub like whatever Doug Collins in, I'd rather have him. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Here's a word from one of our sister podcasts. 
Hi, I'm James Ledbetter. I'm the host of Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, cool companies, and just about anything else that hits the like buttons of my staff. Uh, our staff. Yeah. 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 Woo, Woo, staff. <laughs> this week, we're going to be talking about, John? The giant opportunity in fast food. I will give you a hint. It ain't artisanal and it ain't organic. Okay, Chris Frieswick. HBO's Silicon Valley, funny, but not as funny as the real thing. And Will Yakowitz. I'll be talking about Bloom Nation, the flower company that wants 1-800-Flowers to wilt. So please join us at Inc. Uncensored when we will crush it. We are a proud part of the Panoply Network. Enjoy all the podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Moving along in an issue of The New Yorker that is currently sitting beneath other issues of The New Yorker on your nightstand, Ben McGrath writes about the latest trend in fantasy sports. And it's a good article. You should uh, exhume it from your New Yorker pile. Daily fantasy sports sites like FanDuel and DraftKings allow you to enter a lineup of basketball or baseball or hockey players into a daily contest. Based on how those players perform on the court, field, or ice, you'll win cash and or prizes or lose cash and not win prizes, more likely, uh, (laughs) the very day you enter that contest. There's no Lag time, no waiting around. You will get or lose your money right away. It's the kind of idea that once it comes along, you cannot believe that nobody thought of it sooner. Uh, According to McGrath's reporting, FanDuel, which is advertised on this podcast as part of its huge marketing push over the last few years, plans to give out $1.5 billion in prizes this year, though it is not yet profitable. And sports leagues are trying to get their piece of the action with Major League Baseball owning a piece of DraftKings and the NBA now having a stake in FanDuel. There is no getting around the fact that this is gambling on sports, although statutorily it is classified as a game of skill and thus exempted from federal anti-gambling legislation. So we'll get to the legality issue in a minute. But first, Seth, I wanted to ask you about the user experience. We all entered some contests over the weekend. How did you like it? Uh, it was pretty easy to sign up and enter. The interface was great. And You're I talking actually, about FanDuel, right? That's the... uh, Yes, we did FanDuel um, for the NBA games, for the two NBA games. So I was able to pick a squad of nine players, and then their accumulated statistics would uh, – I would be battling against you know, hundreds and in some cases thousands of other players to get the best scores. Uh, it was, like I said, it was easy to sign up. It was easy to pick my players, and then it was fun to, to track their stats. I actually spent $10 to enter two $5, including the we, – we, we entered the free – uh, tournament, but then I spent five dollars on a, a different tournament, and then five dollars on a third tournament. I was briefly in the money in one of my tournaments. I briefly was stood to m- make a profit of twenty dollars, but then Costas Papa Nicolau let me down in the second game with his two points and four turnovers and negative point eight points contributed to my squad, and so I did not, in fact, finish uh, in the black. So you felt a little bit of the narcotic allure of sports gambling. Here, but is it something that you want to experience again? No, because I'm not a gambler. I, to me, this was not. So I used to do season long fantasy sports, right? And I think the last time I did it was around 2006, and I stopped doing it because I found I couldn't take like a two week vacation without my team, you know, falling down the down the uh, the leaders board, and uh, and it was just too much. It was too stressful. It was too much work. And I found that the spreadsheet jockeys in my fantasy leagues would beat me out. They just had a better facility with data. It was more like analyzing data and analyzing the importance of rebounds versus steals and what cost more and what should cost more and what was undervalued. And that had zero to do with. So- so this know. seemed perfect for you then, right? You also, don't have... I was bad. I was bad at it. So, <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> this criticism is exactly its strength. <laughs> it's it's only good if you understand how important a rebound is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's a, sure. If that's how you, if that's 
I understand. Yes. But the fun for me of the season long was more the camaraderie, right? It was more, it was like a, a very sort of male and sports centered way to create group ties and to bond and to make fun of each other's dorky fantasy league team names and have a little uh, comment board where you could talk smack against each other. And that was the fun for me. And, you know, and the, the, the actual gambling element of it or the spreadsheet analysis element were not fun for me. And I realize that they are fun for other people. But in this version, this iteration of fantasy sports, this is to me exactly like online poker. It's like part skill, part variance, quick returns. And that to me is why people are doing it. It's sort of tickling the same things in your brain. It's, it's very, to me, it's very different than that season-long league of 10 people you know with teams and a, and a chat board where you make fun of each other. So with apologies to David Foster Wallace, this was a genuinely fun thing that I'll never do again. Just like online poker, play that a little bit that I'm like, I'm not going to be giving my life over to this, although I enjoy the activity. Structurally, I'll give him a few suggestions, but overall, the big concept is right. And the big concept is right for how they portray it, which is, hey, it's just a fun little thing. I mean, you could get hours of pleasure for a $10 investment. And I got hours of something approaching pleasure, but it is also true. I could really see it being a gateway to uh, some dangerous addiction. You know, I used to cover a lot of uh, gambling issues. And so the history of gambling is that the dopamine fix, the rush of the actual content, we've gotten closer to putting your money down and getting that rush, you know? So think a hundred years ago, if you bet on horse racing, the races go off every 17 minutes. And so once every 17 minutes, there'd be something exciting to uh, cheer about or take it inside the casino. You know, you play blackjack, a round of blackjack takes, I don't know, two minutes. And then you either, you know, you make your decision and then you, uh, you find out if you win or lose. But now we've fast forwarded to slot machines and some of these slot machines have like 12 lines you can play at once and it's instant gratification instant gratification you know hitting those pleasure centers of your head and FanDuel as, as sports gambling is the same thing now you can bet on every play and FanDuel is the next iteration of that you know quicker and quicker dopamine rushes quicker and quicker opportunities to uh, bet a dollar so that's why I think it can be very addictive that's why I also think that the vast majority of people can use it for fun I think it's what exa exactly what Seth said that it is although it's based on the fancy model because it's not a whole season it lacks a lot of the appeal why a lot of people play fancy with their friends as a social setting but you know I like playing I play fantasy sports not because I'm friends with these guys but because I like to show that I know more about baseball than these guys and can earn a couple of dollars Dollars. And here, here is my, I did okay in the hockey. I did a uh, Friday in, in the Friday hockey pool. I came in 180th out of 1,149 for $0. <laughs> and then in the Sunday hockey pool, I came in 564th out of 1,724 for $0. But I was in the money for a long time. And then my there are only two hockey games. You can't pick more than four guys on one team. So that kind of limits it, right? In the NBA, I totally got destroyed. I came in 75th out of 184th out of 100 because I, I just said, look, you got to put all your money on Raymond Sessions. And Raymond Sessions <laughs> just wasn't that good. He wasn't the bargain I thought it would be. And then the baseball where I came in 4,783rd out of approximately 12,000. So that was okay. That is very different from the other two, especially 
playoff basketball and hockey when there's a limited slate of games. I mean, this one-day fantasy is very different. Like, basically, one-day basketball is just uh, a microcosm of basketball. But one-day baseball is a totally different sport, and it's all depending on matchups, and it's all depending on who does well against lefty-righties. And, you know, it doesn't matter if Mike Trout's a 340 hitter. If he's in a slump, he really is a 240 hitter, and it takes a lot more brain power for good and ill. For If, you, if that's what you want out of fantasy sports, I think one-day fantasy baseball is of a different category than regular fantasy baseball, and it can be very, very fun for the people who want to give their time to that. Well, as McGrath wrote in his New Yorker story, there are a lot of guys who made money in online poker who are now becoming daily fantasy sharps who are spending a lot of time and money and entering a huge number of contests and developing proprietary algorithms and models to try to win lots of money that there is kind of like a you know gold rush for for this but i think it's fascinating that the leagues are partnering up with these sites for two reasons first as you said correctly mike this is gambling like there's not really any way around it you know semantically and maybe statutorily it's not classified as gambling but you are paying money and getting money back or losing money immediately based on the results of players in various games. And so this MLB stance on gambling, the longstanding stance, the one that's led P. Rose to be banned, you know, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, is kind of walking back and saying, oh, we're going to need to start embracing it. But the fact that this is kind of the tentative step is interesting because this is way more of a gambling-like product than traditional fantasy sports. But also, I think it's incredibly smart for baseball in particular because the regular season is so long and boring that this makes baseball exciting on a day-to-day level for the average fan. Like, nobody bets on individual baseball games compared to football or basketball. But daily fantasy baseball, I think, could be huge for, for that sport. And I think that it's actually more gambling, not only than regular fantasy sports, it's of a different category. I mean, regular season-long fantasy sports, anyone who plays them, I think very few people would say it feels like gambling or I do it for the gamble or, you know, there's the the gambler's rush. Daily fantasy, you get that. But I think it's more gambling than with the sport of baseball than actual Vegas betting on games. Because the big problem with gambling is point spreads. It's very hard to get someone to dump a game to lose on purpose. Athletes don't want to do that. So all the scandals come in with, you know, getting them to shave points where you could say you could still win and who cares if you win by two or 16. Uh, With baseball, baseball is not against the spread, you know. So baseball is teams to win and teams to lose. So I don't think there's a lot of, you know, possibility of shaving points. And I also don't think that, you know, we haven't heard a corruption scandal in quite some time. To me, this could lead to a corruption scandal. If this gets huge, one player's one at bat, one pitch that sort of thing. And then if you introduce this to the NCAA level, I predict there will be a scandal. How could there not be a scandal? You're talking about a line that's not run by Vegas. You're not talking about huge movements in the line. You're talking about everyone on a campus not telling a player to tank, but maybe, you know, trying to get him to limit the other guy's assists or rebounds or I don't know. There just seems so many avenues where a player could do a little undetectable thing that could swing some money. 
Well, we at Slate will run a March Madness pool for absolutely no money because it's the camaraderie and it's the bragging rights of telling your coworkers that you had a better bracket than they did. There's basically no reason to do FanDuel or DraftKings for free. I mean, there's like little nominal prizes you can win if you beat the 75,000 other people in the free pool and you win some little prize. But basically the reason to do this is to put money down and win money back against strangers. And that's like that's to me that's just a very different. And you're right, Mike. I think with college basketball, the the temptation for kids who aren't being paid is just it would just be huge. Well, I want to make clear, I don't think that gambling is wrong. I think and I think that giving more people access to an easy way to bet on sports isn't necessarily like the worst thing that's ever going to happen in the world. But I think that, you know, just be clear about what this is and what it's going to do. And I think both of you guys are right about that. But I think and, that and to simultaneously, this... yeah, to simultaneously be in on this business and still like every league other than the NBA, you know, fight governors of states to not be smirched their name through actual gambling at a racetrack is hypocritical and crazy. But I also thought the other smart thing that McGrath mentioned in his piece, and I'm curious, maybe we can end with you guys' thoughts on this, is that this further, um, I think, disaggregates individual performance in sports from performance of team in, in terms of fan loyalty. So Seth might be, if Seth was a huge fantasy football player, he might have more interest in how his team does, his fantasy team does, than how the Patriots do. All right, that's a bad example. But I think that's common for a lot of of fans of baseball, football, whatever, that they care more about their fantasy team than they do about their actual team. Now this is making it so that you have different, um, you don't even have like a fantasy team that you're rooting for. You just have different players that you're following each uh, day. And so you're breaking sports down into like its elemental constituent parts. So there's no longer any team loyalty, no fantasy team loyalty. You're just a free agent every single day. So I wonder if that will erode our feelings about, you know, being a Patriots fan or a Islanders fan or whatever. No, I think they attack two different things in the brain, and I think fandom of a team is the tribal instinct, and the other one is more of the, well, the rush of gambling correctly, but also the informational instinct. And you could also make the case that, like, let's say you're in a uh, year-long baseball fantasy and you didn't get Bartolo Colon, and now he's 5-0. and oh. Hey, now's your chance to go out and play a few Mets if, uh, if that is your want. Or you only play on the days when the Mets are on a winning streak and you think that they could uh, get to... Chad Billingsley or whatever. And they could. And again, for baseball, I think it can only be good because it's such a local sport to have a pastime, a popular pastime that leads people to need to know more about players on other teams and just have a general interest in what's going on in the sport from the day to day. Yep. All right. Time for After Balls. And uh, the lead of Ben McGrath's story mentions Dan Okrent, writer, former New York Times public editor, invented fantasy baseball in 1879. The winner of Okrent's first league was a guy named Glenn Wagoner, who along with Okrent was inducted into the first class of the Fantasy Sports Hall of Fame in 2000. Fittingly, the Fantasy Sports Hall of Fame is not a real place, (laughs) nor would, I don't know if we would want to visit it if it was a real place, but let's honor Glenn Wagoner, fantasy sports champion. Congratulations, Glenn. No induction speech required. Uh, Mike, what is your Wagoner? 
So I was thinking about nicknames, baseball nicknames, and this is a complaint you hear pretty often. Oh, we used to have great nicknames. And I think a reason that we used to have great nicknames and now we don't. I mean, what's really the only good recent nickname? The big unit nicknames like Derek Jeter getting called Jeet as opposed to Ducky Medwick and the Splendid Splinter. And of course, back then when the nicknames were better for individual players, they were bestowed by sports writers. There's a couple things going on. The guys, the actual player who will also put their, always put their hand up and say, call me this. It will be a lame, self-aggrandizing nickname. Plus, in your own life, you ever met a person who's nicknamed himself? Just a terrible thing. All right, so not only are there player nicknames, there are team nicknames, and this falls into the same category. I mean, the nicknames of late, and even if the fans of the teams get behind them, they're the names that the players have bestowed on themselves. And I guess perhaps the only palatable one is when the Red Sox called themselves the idiots, because that wasn't so self-aggrandizing, but still, it doesn't even hold a candle to some of the great nicknames of your, I mentioned Ducky Medwick, he was part of the Gas House Gang, you have the Bronx Bombers, so what's a team, what's a nickname, an available nickname that I, as a sports thinker, writer, talker, can bestow? I would like to, from here on, call the Mets the flushing fastballs. If they're the blo- if they're the Bronx Bombers, and they still, you know, the Yankees have hit more home runs uh, over the last 20 years than any team in the uh, American League. They really do live up to the name. But the flushing fastballs, here, here's my case. One, Dylan G, who was the least fastball pitcher in the rotation, has gone down, and they brought up Noah Syndergaard. That guy can touch 100. I like touching 100. It's very right stuffy. It's very uh, break the envelope. So he could touch 100. So one of the slowest pitchers, been replaced by one of the fastest pitchers. Matt Harvey, in terms of average fastball velocity in the National League, Matt Harvey's 95.7 mile an hour fastball is number one. So they have the fastest starting pitcher. But that's not the big reason. The big reason is Bartolo Colon. He's the big everything. And Bartolo Colon's pitch selection goes like this. This kind of fastball, that kind of fastball, the other kind of fastball. Four-seam fastball, two-seam fastball, inside fastball, outside fastball. Bartolo Colon pitches fastballs on 84.1% of his pitches, leading the National League. Last year, he led the National League. The year before that, he led the league. And he leads the league by 10 points. You know, I think in 2014, Bartolo Colon... 82.6% fastballs, and then Lance Lynn and Shelby Miller, 79. I didn't realize Lance Lynn had, was that high, but Shelby Miller was third with 72%. So eight, so, so he pitches fastballs at a rate, a tremendous rate. He doesn't really think about anything other than a fastball. In fact, he's a good hitter. He weighs 283 pounds. He's my age. He's a good hitter. Wait, wait, wait. Bartolo Colon is a compelling hitter (laughs) with his, 0.75 0.75 lifetime <laughs> average and is no home runs, not a good hitter. His but, OPS you know, plus career is minus 56. I didn't know they okay. went that low. Well, he sometimes would break for third when he had to leg out a single. Okay, so he's a fun guy to watch hit. He's a fun guy to watch throw. He's my age, yet weighs about almost 80 pounds more if you go by the official listing. I love that. Everything about Bartolo Colon would just be a fun story, but for the fact that he's a steroids cheat. Anyway, don't let any of that dissuade you from renaming the Mets the flushing fastballs. Remember when they called uh, the Mets three young phenom prospect pitchers, Generation K? Yeah. That really worked out well for everyone. We'll uh, take your uh, guesses as to who those pitchers were after the show. Pulsifer? Pulsifer. Pulsifer, um, 
the guy from the A's who actually wound up being pretty okay. Jason Isringhausen? Yeah, Isringhausen. It wasn't Casimir. It was... And uh, the, the late, great, number one overall pick, Paul Wilson. Oh, right. Yeah. Paul Wilson is the Abdul Salam of that particular New York sports grouping. All right, Seth. What is your Wagoner? I would like to point out that as a last-minute substitute here on Hang Up and Listen, I've been scrambling for my Wagoner. Uh, Seth was given it. Seth was given ample time to prepare a Wagoner. I just want to make that clear to the listeners. That is false. That's like saying Bartolo Colon is a good hitter. <laughs> uh, so I, I was thinking maybe I was going to talk about. I had this experience boxing, which I recently wrote about for Slate.com, where I went to a fantasy boxing camp, and I was I was going to talk about in light of the Pacquiao Mayweather fight, my big contribution to the analysis of that fight is um, I can tell you the gloves, when they take them off, smell terrible, like really bad. You've never smelled anything worse than the inside of of a boxing glove after it's been used. But then I realized maybe that was not adequate material for a Wagoner, having heard Mike's Wagoner. So here's what I'm going to talk about instead. Uh, In fact, at Mike's suggestion, I'm going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets in-stadium experience. As a season ticket package holder, I live literally across the street from Barclays Center, and so I've been going to a lot of games. And I was recently at uh, one of the Nets playoff games against the Hawks home game, and the stadium was a quarter empty. Very disappointing, but par for the course. And and so it's been three seasons now here at Barclays, and there's still no stadium identity. And there's no real fan base cohesion. It's very disappointing. I mean, it's not an incredibly likable team. That doesn't help. But the, the in-stadium experience has just been sort of botched in a lot of ways. For one thing, Jay-Z used to show up to all the games next to the Nets bunch, bench, and that was very fun. And sometimes he would bring Beyonce, and sometimes I would bring my sister to the game, and if she noticed that Beyonce was uh, in a front row seat, she would just watch Beyonce instead of the game, and to her, that was <laughs> worth a lot of money for a ticket. And that, so Good that strategy was, during the Pacquiao fight also. That was fun, but... Ever since Jay Z became a player agent, does he even still does he still do that? Is he still player agent? Oh, yes, he is. is it, oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they divested him of the team, and that was no. Yeah. So, well, anyway, his his tie to the team has been loosened, and so he doesn't really show up to any games anymore. Instead, Ellen Pompeo shows up to the game. You may know her from Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> and this is equally exciting for my sister, but for a lot of us, it's less exciting than when Jay Z used to come. But if that's there's not, a very like, special game. Maybe they should kill her off. <laughs> That would be an amazing twist. If only Shonda Rhimes designed the Indian Stadium experience at Barclays, it might be a lot different. The other thing that happened, and this is a slightly sadder note. I'm going to bring it down a little bit. You may know the, the sad story of Jeffrey Gamblero, who was sort of the um, mascot fan for the Nets. He was this tall guy who would wear neon and a, and a custom Gamblero number 44 Nets jersey and weird glasses and a hat. And he would just walk around the stadium throwing his hands in the air. And he was beloved by Nets fans. He went to every single game. He had this huge personality. He then went when the Nets played at the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. Gamblero went and was in the audience and was doing his thing for the Nets, which is a very like amiable thing. It's not he doesn't taunt. He's just a happy guy. He tries to get the fans on their feet and cheer for the Nets. And so some Knicks fans were kind of getting into it with him a little bit, but it was all fine. There was nothing. And then the guards came down hard on Gamblero. And it turned out Gamblero had a false prosthetic, he had a prosthetic leg, which came off during the fracas with the guards somehow, or maybe Gamblero took it off his protest. It wasn't clear. Anyway, he was thrown out of the stadium. It was a very traumatic incident for Gamblero. Cut to two weeks later, he 
ran and threw himself out of a window and killed himself. He had mental health problems. There were some problems. He was, a, he was a very interesting character. I encourage you to read some of the profiles that came out about him. He's a fan. He had been a professional poker player. He'd been a graffiti artist. And, and there had been stuff. But, but he blamed it. He said it had been stirred up by this incident at, at Madison Square Garden. So it was this incredibly sad thing. And they did a tribute to Gamblero that I was at at Barclays Center um, where they showed him on the screen and people all wore neon and tribute and wore Gamblero jerseys, which was nice. But again, sort of not the most most happy in-stadium experience. Now he's gone. They've been trying to find another super fan, a mascot fan. They've settled on this older woman in her 50s who dances kind of during the dance moments and it hasn't really taken. Not great. Also, the hype woman who they've had all three seasons is this very tall woman who who is supposed to be the hype lady. But her whole thing is she says, where's Brooklyn? That's like her chant. And then when people kind of half-heartedly cheer, she goes, there's Brooklyn. <laughs> and they once replaced her with an eight-year-old kid who was like, get on your feet what is this a library <laughs> and everyone loved it and it was huge and they should have used that kid yeah. all the time and then finally the last well I should say we should note that lady is Barbara Streisand yes <laughs> exactly true and finally like they still have, they still do that Brooklyn chant in the stadium which you're supposed to use to taunt the other team or the other players you're not supposed to use it to rally your own team and it's this like defeatist unhappy chant just everything about the insane experience is terrible and I would like to write a sternly worded letter to the Nets man about that sternly worded letter <laughs> sternly worded letter we will we will put this on cassette tape and mail it to uh, Barclay Center oh Josh what's your Wagoner I uh, also have just prepared this in the last uh, 15 seconds so so bear with me pro wrestlers are like magicians there's a code an omerta a figure for lip lock on revealing the industry secrets the difference is that the secrets of the magic world are actually secrets while pro wrestling's big secret is less shocking to a five-year-old than the fact that the Easter Bunny isn't real. In wrestling, the act of pretending that preordained outcomes are in fact unscripted is known as kayfabe. There's a long Wikipedia entry on breaking kayfabe, that is, wrestlers and wrestling industry types, acknowledging that events are scripted. There's a long history of this. One of the earliest examples came in the 1930s when wrestling promoter Jack Pfeffer told the New York Daily Mirror that the sport was full of fakery. Back then, people were shocked. But that was 80 years ago. Um, and more amusing to me now are the moments when wrestlers refuse to break kayfabe, when they refuse to acknowledge that pro wrestling is, in fact, not real. In an article in the magazine Wrestling Perspective, Paul MacArthur calls this protecting the business. One example he cites is a 1984 episode of the ABC News magazine 2020 in which the unctuous John Stossel quote-unquote exposed pro wrestling as fake with the help of Eddie Mansfield, who, among other things, showed America how blading worked. That is the act of intentionally cutting yourself to draw blood. But a wrestler named Dave Schultz was not going to break kayfabe Here's a clip of him giving Stossel the business during that same episode. 260-pound Dave Schultz. He used to be tag team partner of Eddie Mansfield, a wrestler who's just told us how every match is fake. I ask Schultz questions that I assume all wrestlers have been asked dozens of times. What? Is this a good business? Yeah, it's a good business. I wouldn't be in it if it wasn't. Why is it a good business? Because only the tough survive. That's the reason you ain't in it. And this punk holding the camera reading he ain't in it. Reading these rednecks out here ain't in it because it's a tough business. That's terrific. What is that all you got? I'll ask you the standard question. You know? Standard question. I think this is fake. You think it's fake? What's that? Is that fake? Oh. 
Huh? What the hell's wrong with you? That's open hand slap, huh? You think it's fake and come? That brings me to what is either the greatest moment in kayfabe adherence ever or the dumbest moment in American history or both. In 1998, Fox was winning a rating success with such shows as The World's Scariest Police Chases, Part 4, Surviving the Moment of Impact, Number 2, and When Animals Attack. Joining that lineup was a one-off special called Lie Detector, a sequel of sorts to a show hosted in the 1980s by future O.J. lawyer F. Lee Bailey. The Fox version was hosted by O.J. prosecutor Marsha Clark and featured polygraph interviews with O.J. detective Mark Furman, Oklahoma City bomber Terry Nichols's brother, mm. and Tanya Harding's ex-husband Jeff Galuli. But mm-hmm. the best-slash-worst segment starred when, Cap... When, when did the animals attack them? I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep waiting. Uh, the best-slash-worst segment starred Captain Lou Albano, who strapped himself in to assert that pro wrestling was unquestionably, indubitably, undisputably real. Captain Lou, who you may remember from Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun video, he was the guy who did not want the girls to have fun, was a longtime wrestler and promoter, a guy who was all about protecting the business and wearing rubber bands in his beard. And so here he is on Fox's lie detector, answering the, the question that Marsha Clark calls risibly the all-important question that's on the mind of so many American sports fans. Remain still. The test is about to begin. That's a good lie detector. Are you now sitting down? Yes. Lou Albano's eyes are bugged out right now. Do you plan to tell the truth on this test about whether or not you were involved in a professional wrestling match? This is the one that can trip you up if you get this wrong. That was fixed. Yes. Did you ever engage in a professional wrestling match in which the winner was predetermined before the match? No. This is a single issue test. All the questions ask the same thing. As a professional, have you ever wrestled in a fixed match? No. Slash is playing this guitar riff while standing on a piano. This is a very similar question. We're looking for consistency of reactivity. This is the sort of music they have the in the background in a futuristic movie please. where people swipe Captain Lou, data we now have items the results on the of your polygraph examination. Are you ready to hear the results? Yes. Yes. Our results have shown that when you said you did not participate in a professional wrestling match that was fixed, you were lying. The machine is a liar. I never participated. Even when told he's lying, <laughs> Captain Lou's reaction is larger than life. Our results have shown that Captain Lou Albano did indeed participate in a professional wrestling match that was fixed. Well, I'll tell you, I don't believe that. I'm going to cut you off. I'll take this to court because the machine is a downright liar. I don't lie. I did not participate in any match that was fixed. Sports or theater? I was not lying. I don't lie. The machine was a fault. Just remember, it's pure theater. You're a liar, lady. The machine's a liar. Captain Lou Albano and Marsha Clark, they would eventually take that to court. They were both mauled by animals. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, the, and that when animals attack, <laughs> when animals attack in lie detector court, part four <laughs> on Fox. Captain Lou Albano, teammate of Sam Ritigliano at the University of Tennessee. Did not know that. Seth, um, you seem particularly taken with the guitar riff. It was more, I would say, the syncopated synthesizer track that drew me in. The guitar riff was the cherry on the Sunday for me. All right. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us 
at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.